All right, so let's go to uh, Mark 3 and Luke 6. We're going to read the entire text of the selection, or the, um, the selection of the 12 apostles. We're going to the second part here of Jesus selecting the 12 apostles. And we were in the middle of talking about Simon the Zealot. And I want to kind of finish that thought a little bit before we move on to um, him. And then, of course, um, the last apostle that we'll talk about. I'll briefly mention another one, too. Uh, Mark 3, verses 13 through 19. You have a volunteer to read this text. Thank you. And he went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired. And they came to him. And he appointed twelve, whom he also called apostles, so that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach, and have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the twelve, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boangris, that is, sons of thunder, Andrew and Philip and Bartholomew, and Matthew and Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus and Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Thank you, brother. Thank you very much. Um, Luke 6, 12 through 16. Anybody? Hey, Jeremy, thank you. In these days he went out to the mountain to pray, and all the time he called his disciples and chose from those twelve whom he named apostles. Simon, whom he named Peter, and Andrew, his brother, and James, and John, and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, Judas, the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. Thank you. All right, we're going back to Simon the Zealot. We're going to kind of cover a little bit of ground that we did before and uh, finish up our, our discussion of, of Simon the Zealot. Here he is in the, in the text, a small section of Mark 3.18, and a small section of Luke 6.15, Mark saying, and Simon the Zealot, and then Luke saying, and Simon who was called the Zealot. Uh, again, these are the passages that he's in. He's, he's just in the lists, right? He's one of those apostles that we don't know hardly anything about. Or, uh, you know, he's in the Matthew list, which comes later. And then, of course, the Mark and the Luke passage. And then he's in the passage in Acts chapter 1, where he's mentioned in the upper room with the other ten. Now, but that doesn't stop people from writing quite a bit about his name as far as what he is called. Um, here is, in the text, the underlying text, what his name is in the Greek. And uh, you'll notice that there are two different terms that are used. In Matthew and Mark, you have one. And then Luke and Acts, you have another. Uh, you have... Uh, Basically, the Greek word that's been translated as Canaanian, and then from the Greek dictionary BDAG, that defines it as, uh, says, quote, from Aramaic, enthusiast or zealot. Um, one author, Joel Williams, he, I think he puts it kind of simply, he says that the word Canaanian is, quote, a transliteration 
into Greek letters uh, of an Aramaic word, end quote. So you'll see like how he will put one letter and then just put it like basically right into the, the Aramaic word. What he does is he just puts basically essentially letter for letter. That's where Kenanian comes from. And then you have the term zelotain or zelotes. Uh, and this is, uh, according to Greek dictionaries like Lawanita and Bdag, it's just basically the term for zealot, although they give more inf- he give, gives more information than just that. Uh, Lawanita, they have a helpful note about zelotes. They say, quote, It is possible that zelotes in Luke 6.15 and uh, Kenan... Nios in Matthew 10.4 function not so much as a designation of an individual belonging to a particular Jewish nationalistic party, uh, but of one who is simply zealous for national independence. And I skipped a, just pulled some things out of the big quote I have there. So basically that it's not necessarily they belong to this zealot party, but they're basically like a nationalist, uh, so to speak. And, um, and I talked about last week that there's also sort of a minority opinion. I mentioned, um, where did I where did I go here with it? Um, oh, well, first of all, let me kind of just back up. So it's kind of widely understood that Simon, because there's this term zealot, that he was a part, a member of the zealot party, right? They advocated rebellion against the Roman Empire and independence for Israel. So they connected, and some even connected to the zealots uh, who had basically had a rebellion or were against Rome years ago in regard to Rome's uh, census for preparation for taxation. You'll see uh, authors, some authors say that. But that's kind of not my opinion. You can kind of take it, you know, how you want uh, after you kind of, you know, you think it over. But I'm sort of of the minority opinion. A couple of scholars I read talked about this, uh, Robert Duncan Culver and R.T. France, that the term zealot isn't a political one, but a religious one. Um, as a matter of fact, Culver quotes this one author, Archibald Hunter, in his work, The Work and Words of Jesus, and he said, quote, the name zealot was not used to describe the sector party earlier than A.D. 66, end quote. So if he's right, that there wasn't like a zealot party until the revolt of Israel against Rome in AD 66, then we're reading back into the text something that's not there, if that's true. Um, if you're convinced of it, that's fine. But I would, I would just sort of, I'm just kind of convinced that uh, Simon wasn't part of a nationalistic party as much as he was a um, basically zealous for the Lord. And we talked about uh, last week how that word zealous is... Uh, used. R.T. France, in his uh, commentary on Mark, he points to a couple of passages where the term uh, zealot is used uh, religiously. And um, it's uh, interesting, a couple of those passages actually refer to Paul. Like, for example, let me see, do I have... Oh, I skipped over. I will go back to... Oh, no, I don't have that up in the text. But any, in any case, like, for example, I'll just read one. Acts 22, verse 3, Paul says, quote, I am a Jew, born in Tarsus in Cilicia, but brought up in this city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God, as all of you are this day. And you have other terms in the New Testament, times in the New Testament, where you have the term zealot, and it's basically like zealous for basically the law. You have zealous for good works. That would be Titus 2, uh, 14. Uh, 1 Peter 3.13, being zealous for what is good. So the term zealot 
doesn't necessarily have to be a nationalistic type of, of term. But in any case, um, it was brought up at the end of last week, and we'll talk about it just a moment, that if you have a King James, and I heard from a brother, he had a new King James, you will see not Simon the Canaanian or Simon the Zealot, you'll see Simon the Canaanite. And so where does that come from? Um, now, the Texas Receptus and a, a similar text, when I was just doing some research on it, a couple of the uh, texts that I have said that they were basically sort of more uh, faithful, like this is basically where the KJV comes from, uh, the authorized version or whatnot, as they, the term they use, uh, for one of them anyway. They have a term, if you'll notice the Greek term, it's kenanites uh, or kenanitain. And that's what that's what that manuscript, those manuscripts say, and the K, and the K, uh, KJV translates the word Canaanite, and authors talk about how basically that this is a, a mistranslation. Uh, R. T. France he comments he thinks quote many later manuscripts presumably unaware of the Aramaic root of Canaanias read Canaanitain. So basically it's just a uh, in the later manuscripts this uh, word came across and so it was translated Canaanite. But looking through Lawanita's dictionary, um, you kinda, you'll take a look and see how uh, it reminded me of the fact that at least the word Canaan is there. I think I remember looking and seeing Canaanite, but you'll look here at Canaan in Acts 7.11 and Canaanite in Matthew 15.22. You'll notice that the word is spelled differently. You see that? So, like on the right, by the way, the Canaanite in Matthew 15, 22, that's the Canaanite woman who Jesus says it's not good uh, to give what is for the children and give it to the dogs. That's her. And uh, you'll notice that the word, the, the root word, is spelled differently. And you'll notice the word uh, Canaan uh, is, is spelled differently as well. So looking through the dictionaries like Launita and then the NA pulled that uh, the Greek there from the NA the Nestle Allen 27. Basically the point is it's just a simple mistranslation is what it is. And just an issue text critical type stuff. So that's where it comes from. Uh, any questions on any of that? Okay. Um, so John Fox tells us at least what he thinks happened to Simon. He says, quote, Simon the Apostle called uh, Cananus and Zelotes preached in Mauritania and in the country of Africa and in Britain he was likewise crucified, end quote. So that's the tradition that he references. That's He believes what happened to him. They went preaching and they went to Africa and Britain and Mauritania and was crucified. So any questions on Simon the Zealot? All right. Now we get to the infamous one. Mark 3.19 and Luke 6.16. Mark 3.19 and Judas Iscariot who betrayed him. And Luke 6.16 and Judas Iscariot who became a traitor. He's the son of as is pointed out, of, of Simon Iscariot. He has the same name. 
He's called uh, son of Simon Iscariot, or he's called Simon's son. Um, so it's interesting. Uh, in D.A. Carson, in his uh, commentary on Matthew, he gives uh, six options for translating Iscariot. Um, the one that seems to be the majority is basically that he comes from a town called Kerioth. To quote Bruce Mesker, he says, according to most scholars, and I'll skip the, the Greek words, um, it's derived, is derived from the Hebrew word ish Kerioth, a man from Kerioth, end quote. So scholars note that this was a town located in, in Moab, which is later... Uh, believe when I read, it was later occupied by Israel. And then others talk about how basically it's a town in, in Judah itself. They talk about that there's two options. Um, many scholars believe that this is the name of Iscariot, and I would tend to take that view. That it's basically saying where he's from. Um, and they comment that he is the only non-Galilean disciple. So Judas is unique and the fact that he's not from Galilee. He's the only one. Um, that doesn't necessarily mean that, you know, that's a tip-off that he's evil. But it's just something uh, worth, worth noting. Um, one commentator, Walter Wessel, he, gives, uh, he lists two options for the city's location. He says, quote, Kerioth Hezron, uh, 12 miles south of Hebron, or with Kerioth in Moab. Uh, those are his two options. Um, but whatever the case, I don't think that Jesus would pick a non-Israelite to be an apostle. Uh, personally, I don't think that would have ever gotten off the ground in Israel. So, Judas is mentioned in these texts here. Uh, mentioned in the lists. It is uh, interesting, this may have been pointed out in something I read, but uh, I think maybe so. But you'll notice what book... If you just take a look at the list, before, before the betrayal, who gives us a little bit more about Judas? John. You notice that? John. John there again, as it's been pointed out to us, an eyewitness. Right? He gives us a little bit more about Judas. He gives background. Um, we'll say we'll talk more about Judas when we actually get to where he becomes like a really major player. But uh, in any case, this is where he is. Uh, it's pointed out how he like there's like a focus on him when it comes to the time of, of betrayal. Um, Jesus calls him in John seventeen twelve. He's mentioned as he's not named, but we know who he's talking about the son of destruction. Notice in John six. Jesus calls him a what? A devil. He's also, of course, uh, we know what happens to Judas, right? We know what happens to him. He commits suicide, which, by the way, only Matthew points out. Any questions on Judas? Yeah. Yeah, I'm kind of hung up on the title of Apostle. Um, I'm sure there probably. I'm sure there is. <laughs> no, uh, what, what, what's hanging you up? Just that he was called an apostle. I'm not saying that Jesus is wrong because it says that he called them apostles. 
seems to me that Judas was included in that, and your title slide says that too. Yeah, it does. Because he was. Yeah. Because he was. And you're right. We, I'm just thinking of the term apostle as, you know, highly regarded. I'm thinking of Paul and um, guys like that that were champions of the faith. And then here's Judas. That's why, I guess that's why I'm hung up. Because of the character. Yes. Yeah. He, he, doesn't, he doesn't meet the full criteria um, of, of the apostles that we, we talk about. Um, he right. was sent out apostle. Apostle means one who sent. Right. He was messenger. Yeah. Those sent. That's the sent yeah. out to preach the gospel, but he he was not a witness to the resurrection. No, he wasn't. No, he wasn't. Um, and he lost it. He lost that apostleship, and so they said in Acts that it was it'd be given to another. Yep, Matthias, who is only mentioned just real quick. He's only mentioned there in Acts, and that's it. He's, he's gone. Right? That's kind of an interesting thing, too. I need to look and see if I could find at some point maybe what, what church history thinks happened to Matthias. I'm sure there's, there's some sort of tradition about him. Um, but yeah, he doesn't fit as far as the character. And yet, nevertheless, as it's been, as we mentioned, and I, as, as it's been said, he does what the other apostles do. Like, Judas healed people. Yep. Help himself and yep. had a wrong attitude about many things. Simple attitude. Yeah. Although it kind of it comes out, right? right? John gives us a little bit of insight in there. And, and, you know, again, it just goes to show you, just beat the drum again, how good our Lord is to us to give us all these gospel accounts to harmonize. That we have what we need. Right? That we have this insight into Judas. I mean, it, maybe we would think, if we didn't have John, that Judas just kind of got, you know, sidetracked and, you know, just made a terrible mistake, which he did. Terrible sin, which he did. But John gives us an insight into his character that he wasn't this, he, he was lost the whole time. I mean, that term son of destruction carries a lot of weight, at least it does with me. I mean, he's, he's destined for this. And yet, and yet, nobody forces to do Jude, to, for Judas to do what he does. He does it freely, willingly. Nobody forces him to betray the Christ. It seems like nobody knew really the depth of his depravity until, until the very end. Right. Right. They didn't even think it was him. That's right. So that's kind of scary too. Yeah. Mike. I mean, the text you showed on the previous slide, I think it was Mark said, who betrayed him. Yeah. And then Luke said, who became a traitor, which is interesting. Yeah. It sort of indicates that he wasn't a traitor from day one in right. character, and, but he became a traitor. I, I, yeah, I would agree with that. Um, he was lost, right? He was lost. But he wasn't a traitor until he actually plotted. Which, when we get to that, it's going to be really interesting to see what 
uh, what actually, and I, I gather this from, from Bookman, and I'm sure others do uh, say this too, what actually pushes Judas over the edge? Um, to, to use the term that's been, that's been used. Um, and I think I mentioned last week, uh, I think I probably, I always get things from Bookman, he's so good. You guys ought to just check his stuff out online. But um, he used the illustration, I believe, if I recall correctly, that basically nobody names their, their kid Judas. You know, and um, and how just like any, I think he also used the illustration like nobody names their kid Benedict, right? Yeah. As in Benedict Arnold, uh, he's you know infamous, right? He's uh, he's infamous, and he gives us a warning too. I, I think if we harp too much on him, um, that that's not helpful. But he does um, make us aware that there could be. Um, false apostles, well, well, false teachers among us. I mean, even Paul says in Acts 20, right? People will rise up from within your, your own ranks, within yourselves, and to beware. But yeah, I, you know, I think that Jesus chose Judas to basically make sure that he would get to the cross. To, to, make, to, to ensure the fact that he would be betrayed. And he did all of the things that the other apostles did, but at the end he is shown to be fraudulent and he's, he's replaced. And then Jesus adds one more apostle later after his resurrection. Um, anything else? Well, that, that idea kind of adds, sorry, that yeah. idea adds to the idea that um, God can make vessels for wrath or for dishonorable use and some for honorable use. It just kind of confirms that idea. Yeah. I agree. What's that? Going along your line of thinking. Yeah. Yeah. And from our side, take care, brother, lest there be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart. You know? Yeah. Take care, brother. Right. Yeah. Yeah, there, there, is, there is a warning. There is an implicit warning there with, with Judas. Yeah, Michael. Yeah, I've heard uh, someone make the connection with the passage in Hebrews that possible for those ones that might have tasted the powers of the. Judas had done that. He had tasted of that, that power of the Spirit, you know, at work through him to to do miracles and such. Connect that passage with Judas. That that's what he's talking about. Well, that's not, not necessarily okay. Not specifically him, but but that Satan would be an example of that. Satan would be, or Judas would be. I'm sorry, Judas. Yeah. Judas. Yeah. That's an interesting connection. I I don't think I've ever thought about that. That's pretty. That's good. That's good. Maybe he is what's referenced. You know, Hebrews is is uh, a wonderful book. I mean, they all are. He would be but, like an archetype. Of yeah, of that. Yeah. But um, so yeah, there, there's him, and then there's the apostle Matthias who replaces him. And the only text we see him in is in Acts, where he actually is. Uh, they cast lots to determine who replaces uh, Judas, and it's it's Matthias. And of course, we have the last apostle, the apostle Paul. In any case, so those are the apostles. Um, now, I want to talk just for a second about the apostles' preparation. So what is Jesus preparing the apostles for? Right? What is going to be, what is the ministry of the apostles going to be like after Jesus ascends and goes to heaven? What's that going to be like? 
Well, I picked out four things. There may be more. The apostles, first off, they're going to spread the good news of Jesus the Messiah and his gospel. That's going to be one of their higher, highest priorities, right? Peter's, it starts off with Peter's sermon in Acts uh, chapter 2, verses 14 through 36. Peter spreads the good news of Jesus being the Messiah and his resurrection. And we also have, of course, Paul, the apostle that Jesus chooses after his resurrection, right? He has a special ministry of spreading the good news of Jesus and his gospel. Uh, anybody care to read Romans 15, 15 through 20 off the screen there? Or just in your own Bible? We have a volunteer. I got you. Thank you. But on some points I have written to you very boldly by way of reminder because of the grace given me by God to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. In Christ Jesus, then, I have reason to be proud of my work for God. For I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience by word and deed, by the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem and all the way around to Illyricum, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ, and thus I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation. Okay. So, of course, you know, it's talked about, and the text even says that Paul has a ministry to the Gentiles, right? He is the apostle to the Gentiles. And his mission is to spread the news about Jesus and his gospel to them. I think secondly, what Jesus is preparing them for is to teach, lead, and equip the church. Acts 2.42, for example. And they devoted themselves to what? What's the text say? The apostles' teaching. And the fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayer. So they devote themselves to the apostles' teaching. Or consider Acts 4.33, which says, And with great power the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And great grace was upon them all. And uh, they also go to bless and to give the Spirit, Acts, 4, uh, Acts 8, rather, 14 through 15, says, And now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. And they served to lead. Uh, it's pointed out that the great crisis of the early church is the Jerusalem council. What do we do with these Gentiles? Right? Who don't have the Mosaic Law. And the controversy is, do they obey it? Or do they not? Right? As a matter of fact, turn to the text that I actually don't have up here, but to make sure that, we, that I'm accurate about it. Circumcision is the controversy, and it kind of continues to come up in the epistles too, doesn't it? Acts 15, verse 1, But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Man, that's clear, isn't it? That is clear. And so, who does the church appeal to? They appeal in part to the apostles. Verse 2 of Acts 15. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles 
and the elders about this question. Going to verse 6. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. So the apostles and the elders are gathered to settle the debate. How are we to proceed? And what they decide goes. 1 Corinthians 12, 28. And God has appointed in the church first who? Apostles. Ephesians 4, 11 through 12. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry for the building up the body of Christ. So, the apostles are to teach, lead, and equip the church. Third, they perform signs and wonders. Acts 2.43 And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. Acts 5, first half of, uh, one section of verse 12, first section of verse 12. Now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles. So the apostles performed miracles just like Jesus. And then finally, this point uh, on Friday night at D Group, this, this point kind of uh, really stood out to me. It was a part of the section we read. To suffer as Christ did. And to model suffering for the church. Would somebody read 1 Corinthians 4, 9-13, please. in his defense of his apostleship and comparing himself to others to the Corinthians here what is his life like? the apostles are last of all like men sentenced to what? death just like who? Jesus and they are a what to the world? a spectacle Verse 10, we are what? Fools. Verse 10, we are weak. We are in disrepute. Don't you like how Paul stacks stuff for you to get the point? No honor. Not yet. That comes later. Verse 11, to the present hour, we fly big jumbo jets, right? We hunger and thirst. Verse 11, we have $10,000 custom suits. We are poorly dressed. 
and buffeted and homeless. Verse 12, And we labor on the backs of poor retired people on fixed income and drain their bank accounts. Working with our own hands. When we revile, we make sure we get them back. We bless. We persecute. We endure. Man, does this not look like the Messiah or what? We slander, we entreat. And we have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. This is what apostleship was like. And this is the example that we are to follow. And even in a very sad but yet comforting way, when we are treated like scum of the world, hello last week, we know that our Lord is showing grace to us because we're we look like Him. So we must remember too that we don't revile in return. We bless when we're persecuted. When we're slandered, we entreat them. We remember the passage that vengeance is the Lord's, he will repay. But this is what this is what Jesus is preparing them for, is this. Later comes the glory. Not now. Yes, Robert. And then at this point at the church when he's writing this, Jesus was one man who suffered, and everyone, of course, saw that. But now there's 12 people, there's 12 apostles going through the same thing. And then, of course, 3,000, then 5,000. And as we go through the world, it's, it's amazing how God uses the suffering of the saints to spreading and to vindicate the gospel. Because we want to do this. There's something connected there. I don't know exactly why, but God uses our suffering. And God uses our suffering because I think what happens is when you go through suffering, we all know everybody can fake it until you go to suffering. And when you go through suffering, that's when the real person comes out. And that's when the people around you see who you really are. And praise the Lord when, he's, when you're dying of cancer. Yeah. Or when they kill you for it. Praise the Lord, he loves us enough to put the heat on so that he manifests in us his work in our lives as another means of assurance to say, yeah, we really do belong to him. All right, anything else? Yeah, and disrepute. Yeah, and falsely accused. This has been happening over the world for a long time. They've been slandering Christians for forever. Yeah. We kind of forget all that and we say, oh, how wonderful it would have been back in the days of one of Jesus' followers. No, no, it wouldn't have. It wouldn't have been good. I mean, people would have known where you stood. Right? But no. 
That, that, those were, they were good times, but they weren't good and times. And they didn't know so many things that we know about how it was all going to turn out. That they made it harder. Yeah. To, to quote the, the Charles Dickens book, right? It was the best of times, it was the worst of times. Yeah. Kind of like today. But the best of times comes when Jesus comes back. All right, let's go, um, let's at least finish this small uh, text. We're not going to get to read the sermon this morning. But next we have Matthew 5, verses 1 through 2, and Luke uh, 6, 17 through the first half of verse 20. I, again, follow Thomas and Gundry's harmony, although I, as far as the uh, sections go, include a little bit of, of verse uh, 20 here. But in any case, uh, let's read these. Can I have a volunteer just quickly read Matthew 5, 1 through 2? Thank you, Ian. Seeing the crowd, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying... Oh, thank you. And Luke 17, uh, Luke 6, 17 through the first half of 20. Somebody read that for us. And he came down with them and stood on a level place with a great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon who came to hear him and to be healed of their diseases and those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured and all the crowds sought to touch him for power came out, of, out from him and he healed them all and he lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said okay and then we get into the sermon now it's some people think that the sermon that's described in Luke 6 and the sermon in Matthew 5 are two different sermons. And then there are some who believe that they're the same. I think they're the same. I, I think it's the same, um, it's the same sermon. So we'll, when we get to the Sermon on the Mount in a couple weeks, we're going to be uh, looking at them side by side. Uh, and in any case, we'll go to Matthew 5, uh, first half of verse 1. Now, he says, seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain. Now, this may be describing Jesus' movement to the mountain, or as its scholars say, basically hill country, to pray to the Father and to choose the apostles. That may be what Matthew's referring to here. Maybe not. This may not have... Uh, this may not have Jesus' um, mountain, hill, country, prayer, and apostle selection in mind, perhaps. It's possible that Jesus came down from the mountain, uh, saw the crowds, and then moved back up on the mountain, or in a mountain, so that he could adequately, adequately address the, his apostles and crowd. That's also uh, proposed. In my judgment, it kind of seems maybe better to take it that I kind of lean towards... That the fact that Matthew's kind of talking about uh, Jesus going up to the mountain to pray and to select his apostles, maybe he's not. Maybe he sees the crowd, he comes back up so that he can address his uh, disciples. In any case, Luke 6.17, And he came down with them and stood on a level place, with a great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon. So after selecting his apostles, Jesus descended from the mountain or hill country with them and he stood on a level place. So we have one on a mountain and Jesus here on a level place. How do we harmonize the two? Uh, Thomas and Gundry say it very succinctly, but I think correctly, quote, Jesus delivered this sermon from a level place on the side of a mountain, end quote. Pretty simple. 
Um, others essentially agree with that. Maybe some little variants here and there. Um, Daryl Bach points out uh, that a previous version of the Greek dictionary I referenced BDAG and BDAG, quote, note that Luke's term for plain can be a plateau on a mountain, end quote. And that actual Greek word there uh, to use, um, is that? Yeah, BDAG's definition. Uh, pedinos, that word is, quote, flat, level, either as opposed to steep, uneven, or in contrast to high, elevated, end quote. So this very well could be just a flat place on a mountain, and that's how I would take it. So a great crowd of Jesus' disciples gathered to him. This text, I think, demonstrates how many professed disciples Jesus had at this point in the ministry. He had a... What's, what's, uh, how, how big is the number of disciples here? What, what's Luke say? A great crowd, right? Notice it says a great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people. So you have many people at this point claiming to be Jesus' disciples. And notice a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon come to Jesus as well. This is reminiscent of the passage we looked at previously in Mark 3, second half of verse 7 through the first half of verse 8, where Mark states that, quote, And a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea and from beyond the Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon. This may very well be the same crowd Luke is describing here. So, verse 18 in Luke 6. The great multitude of people came for two reasons. What's the text say? To hear him, right? To hear Jesus' teaching. And to be healed of their diseases. It's interesting, I think, that Luke notes that the crowd didn't come solely for the healing. Notice that? Not this time, anyway. Uh, they didn't come clearly just for the healing. Jesus' teaching clearly captivated the crowds. Of course, as Luke notes, the multitude also came to be healed. We don't want to discount that. News about Jesus' miraculous uh, works spread throughout and beyond Israel. I shared this before, but recall what Daryl Bach uh, quoted in before. He said, quote, Word about Jesus spread in all directions. End quote. So geez, the word about Jesus is getting out, and they come to hear him and to be healed. And those who are troubled with unclean spirits, that is, they're possessed or tormented by demons, they're cured by Jesus, right? They're delivered. Jesus brought deliverance, healing, and hope to these people. Now look at verse 19 and be awed by it. Let's read it again. And all the crowd sought to touch him, for power came out from him, and what? Healed them all. I could just leave you with that. The display of his freeing power was so great and compelling that all the crowd sought to touch him. Can you imagine the swarm around Jesus? Everyone just reaching, try, trying just to get a hold of him somehow. The Spirit's power, the healing power of Jesus is so great that it's coming out from him and healing everybody around him. What do you say to that? 
It's incredible. I mean, it, there, there's, there's no way that this could be faked. How authentic it was. And again, as it's pointed out, nobody denied that Jesus did miracles. Nobody. I mean, you get the idea here that power is just coming out from Jesus and he's not even touching them. But they're trying to touch him. Maybe he is. But just the incredible display here. Yeah. How do the Pharisees reject this guy? How do they attribute that to Satan for all the things they did? Well, as it's been said by other, at least in other or others, sin makes you stupid. Finishing up. Matthew. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him. He opened his mouth and taught them, saying. And then Luke 6, first half of verse 20. He lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said. So Jesus sat down on the level place on the mountain, and his disciples gathered around him. The multitude likely did as well. Sitting has been described by scholars as a typical teaching position. So this would be normal for Jesus to do this. So Jesus lifted up his eyes on his disciples. The LSB and the NASB 95 says he turned or, or turned his gaze toward his disciples. I think the term is turned there. He uh, Basically, he's looking at his disciples. So, and Jesus opened up his mouth to teach them. Notice the focus here on the disciples. Um, I like what Thomas and Gundry say about this. They say, uh, it, quote, uh, quote, it, meaning the sermon, was addressed to his disciples, but the multitude was not excluded from the benefit of his words, end quote. And many scholars agree that Jesus is teaching the disciples in his sermon, but the crowds are also here as teaching, even if for part of the message. And it's pointed out that I think that's important when we remember, when we get to the Sermon on the Mount, that Jesus, as is pointed out, is primarily teaching the disciples here. But Jesus isn't excluding anybody either. So Jesus is there, and he's going to preach, he's going to teach And then that's when we get into the beautiful section of the Sermon on the Mount, or the Sermon on the Plain, as it's called about Luke. And we'll dive into that next week. We won't dive into it just yet. We'll maybe read it. And we will talk about the different interpretations of the Sermon on the Mount. I read one uh, author who talked about that there are, that he saw, he was referencing somebody else, that there were 36 different interpretations of the Sermon on the Mount. We obviously we're not going to cover thirty six. I don't even know what the thirty six all the thirty six would be. But it is important, and there's and it's pointed out too that there's so much written on the Sermon on the Mount, right? And we could just kind of take for granted. Well, I thought the sermon meant this, right? Or I thought it's that. But we want to make sure that we try to handle the sermon accurately and let it speak for itself. And as much as we can uh, get to it objectively, we'll look at it and see what it says, and figure out what Jesus is doing there and why he's saying what he's saying and how it applies to us today. So uh, any questions or comments before we end in prayer?